0: Hope Church. All right, good morning. We're going to continue our study uh, in Genesis this morning. We're in chapter 19, at the very end of chapter 19, where we finished last week. There's a part of the story that's um, the redemptive part of the story that we see in the rest of scripture that we didn't get to talk about. Um, last week, um, but we will talk about this week, um, and so before we go to, again in, in prayer, and get really rolling in the message, I um, want to just give a reminder from last week, last week we ended the lesson with a warning about the impact of prevailing culture. We saw the impact of the prevailing culture um, on Lot, and particularly um, on his daughter's um, and so they saw the world um, through this uh, through this lens, or this this world view that wasn't how God wanted them to see the world. And so they end up not looking to God as the source of you know direction and help um, and comfort and problem solving um, for the for the things that come up in their lives. But they view like how would their culture have tried to solve this problem? And then they go about solving the problem, trying to solve the problem in that way. Um, And so that's where we have the sad event with Lot and his daughters. And from that um, comes the the Moabites um, and the Ammonites who end up um, causing a lot of problems for the Hebrew people um, moving forward. As Moses writes, the Torah, when he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, by the time he is writing that, the Moabites um, have caused all sorts of trouble um, for um, the Hebrews. And so even Moses doesn't know the whole redemption story um, and how it's all going to play out. He, he knows that there are certain things in the future that God is going to, to do. Um, that, are, that he he understands through God's direct, direct revelation to him, um, he understands some, you know the prophetic things, you know the things to come, and some of those are things that we read about as we read the rest of the Old Testament and into you know the Gospels. But he doesn't know the details of all, how all that plays out, and he certainly doesn't know the role um, of a particular Moabite. Woman, um, in the redemption story of God, and so we're going to talk about that um, some this this morning. But I do want to just give us a reminder from last week because we kind of we we left last week with a charge to ourselves to make sure that we are seeking wisdom and discernment, and that we have a standard for what we are putting into our minds, into our hearts. And that standard is from Philippians four eight. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report. If there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Well, folks, you know we can only meditate on what we've taken in. You see, biblical meditation is completely contrary to our. our Absolutely different from the type of meditation that's talked about today where you're trying to, to empty yourself. You know, people are trying to empty themselves. Well, that doesn't really work, you know, either because people are going to be filled with something and they're going to be filled with certain ideas and ethics and morals and principles in life that they are going to live by to a certain degree. You know, to faithful to those things or are less faithful to those things. Um, but this idea of just emptying yourself isn't biblical meditation. Being, biblical meditation is being filled with the truth of God and meditating a, a serious, uh, continuous pondering of fault, of giving time and space to think about those things. But we can only think about those things if that is, if our inputs are actually what is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good and things that are virtuous, things that are praiseworthy. Because, you see, if we're putting in the garbage, and then we're putting a little bit of the Word of God in, what wins out? You know, if you put up I mean, it's kind of like this. If you even just think about the human human body, you know, if you you have, you know, boxes of donuts and you've got a little bit of salad, which one's impacting, and that's that's what you're eating every day. You know, like, I'm going to eat a couple boxes of donuts I'm going to eat a little salad. Well, which one is winning in in your body? You know, the the, the large quantity of the donuts are going to counter out and overcome that little bit of, of salad. So, the, the more healthy food you had, then you could counteract if you had, you know, some dessert, right, at the, at the end of the day. And I'm a dessert, you know, I'm a dessert person, i from a dessert family, but, you know, we have to understand, like, there's proportions, right, and, and there's, what we should be focused on is the majority of what we eat and the minority. Now, the illustration breaks down a little bit because we shouldn't willfully be putting any garbage into our, our mind's you know, hearts, our souls. You know, we shouldn't be like, "Oh, I want that." A certain amount of it is just going to come through the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. But we shouldn't be signing up for it um, and saying, "Oh, give me more of that." What what believers need today? I mean, um, we we have a desperate need for wisdom and for discernment. We have a desperate need for godly wisdom and for discernment to know what is right and wrong and how to, to parse it because you see all world will, will tell us that, that box of donuts is what's good for us. It'll actually tell us that that's the healthy food. And that's what we should consume. You see culture is super impactful. You see your culture dictates, you know, what language you speak, but then even what words you use in language and how those, you know, words are used. Think about it. When I was younger, you know, the word "cool" became a very big word. That's cool. That's not cool. Oh, cool! You know, everything cool. Nobody went up and said, "Oh, that's warm." You've been like, "What "What are you talking about?" You know, everybody said that's cool because we, you know, we had been collectively influenced by our culture. That that's the word we're gonna to, to describe certain things. We're not gonna use the word warm for that. You'd be an outsider. That'd you know, be pretty weird. I mean, that dude always says warm. That's really strange. The sports that you enjoy are different if you've grown up in a different culture. The foods that you enjoy eating. It's all food. That's, that's my comfort food, or that's my go-to food, or that's the food I like the most of a lot of times, that's because, you know, that's what you, you know, grew up with. Now, for some of you, you know, you have maybe, um, your food wasn't the tastiest in, in, in your house, and so then, you know, you found something better, you know, down the road, which explains the desire of the British Empire to, like, get everywhere in the world, okay? It's because it was just really a desperate search for better-tasting food. <laughs> um, sorry, I had to, had to go there. This is more, guess, That's mostly a joke. Um, anyway, anyway uh, you know, that's, but, but we're influenced by the culture that we're in, and so what our culture, it, it doesn't just affect those type of things, it also affects what we view as right and wrong. What we view as good and as evil. Well folks, we have to be really careful that our standard of what is right and wrong, and our standard of what good is equal does not come for us from our world, but from God. And from God's standard that He gave us in Scripture. And that that's all we can go by because that's the unchanging word of God where our culture even even today our culture is going to be wildly different on what things are right and wrong from the United States to the Middle East to Asia, to Africa, to South America in any place you're going to find things and in certain places things are going to line up on certain issues more with God's perspective, on another thing it's less than, but We don't want to have that to be the dictating um, point for how we view what is right and what is wrong, from what is wise and what is foolish, from what is good according to God and what is good according to the world. So we have to be discerning. And we have to remember that the enemy will always dress up the lies, and will even use bits of truth to make it more difficult for us to parse out those things and to understand those things and say yes or no. Finally, brother, right, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure or lovely or true or true, there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as we put more into your word. We are reminded of your great redemption story through um, Moabite on Ruth. roof. We are blessed and we are thankful that God, you bring out you can bring out such beauty from ashes. You can bring life from death. Lord, you can work and do amazing and wonderful things, and we are so blessed and so thankful. And we thank you this morning. Jesus, that you went to the cross on our behalf. And we pray these things and ask these things in your precious name. Amen. So again, we have the benefit of seeing the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. That's a privilege that we have that those in the time of Moses didn't have. But we have the story of Ruth, and in Ruth chapter one, verse one, it says, "Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled." Okay, so here we're, we're fast-forwarding for for this morning um, out of Genesis from this scene um, with Lot and his. His, his daughters, this very sad scene that we talked about in more detail last week. And we have the Moabites and the Ammonites, and then we're we'll fast-forwarding through, um, which we're going to hit very soon, you know, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau, and Joseph, and all the rest of Genesis, and then being in the land of, of Egypt, and, um, you know, slaves for 400 years, and then coming out, you know, to the promised land, and the problems that they have, um, with the Moabites and the Ammonites, and then um, the judges, the time of the judges, and then we're going to have Ruth, and then eventually it's going to we're going to have King Saul, and then you know Islam replaced by King David, and through the kings, and then a period of you know the prophets and you know prophets and kings, and then we're in a period of silence, and then boom. the Incarnation. So, this is that point in the days when the judges ruled. And there was a famine in the land. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And it man of Bethlehem, Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You see, people will do desperate things when they're hungry. Even go to the land of their enemy. When they're hungry. Um, and the man, the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilean, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took. They took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Melon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. No woman, no mother, even you know, wants to survive her husband, and especially... But that 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 part's you know one's going to go first, right? But no mom wants to go before her children. She doesn't want to go before her sons, but the sons die first. Verse six, and she rose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she heard uh, in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. So, if okay, the famine is back in, in Judah is done, and they went on their they went on the way to return to the And of Judah, they only said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to your mother's house. The Lord will kindly with you, if you has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So Naomi's advice, advice is, go back to your homes, and then, you know, go back to your friends, and then remarry. You know, you are still young. You can still, you know, kind of have the life that you hoped you would have. Don't come back with me. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. But say I have hope if I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons. Would you wait for them to be grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, And that's her perspective, right? Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So even a person that is godly can give very ungodly advice when they're in distress, because Naomi views it as, you know, God is not been favorable to her because of the... Pain that she's endured. Instead of looking to God to be her comfort, she's a bit bitter, you know, about the situation. And we understand that. We understand it in her humanity, but it doesn't make it the right choice. And in that, she gives very bad advice because she should have been saying, "Come with me to my land, so you can learn more about." You know, she's worried about these physical things about, you know, you're gonna have a husband and children and all that, but the bigger issue it should have been, hey, I can't promise you that you'll have a husband and children and family, but I can promise you, come back to the land of Judah with me, you can learn more about the true and living God, you can learn more about Yahweh. But instead she gives us really terrible advice, which is, go back to your gods. It's a low point in her life and in her faith. But Ruth said, "Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following you. Wherever you go, I will go; and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and will also, if anything but death parts you and me." When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And that's a place we're all familiar with in the story, right? And I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but the story continues, you know, that Ruth uh, marries Boaz and becomes the great-grandmother of King David, and is in the human genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. This is the, this in the Bible? You see, for the, for the Hebrews, the Israelites, who the people of Moab have been their enemies, and there have been so many troubles and battles, wars, to think that God would use a Moabite woman as key to the redemption story for the entire human race—it's it's, again—it goes back to the promise of Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed, and that um, even someone who, in, a, in a people that was adamantly opposed to God and lived wickedly as a whole. there's still the opportunity for individuals to say, no, I, want, I want the real people. I want the true and living God. God can redeem even the worst of circumstances. So how the Bolivites came to be in the first place was under the worst of circumstances. How Naomi gets to Moab in the time of the famine is under terrible circumstances. How she loses her husband and her sons is terrible circumstances. But, in the end, there's God's redemption story. And that we are blessed because of the faith of a Moabite woman long, long ago. How cool is that? How awesome is that? And these sort of things are still happening today that God redeems out of terrible circumstances. You know, I'm careful this morning how I talk about the story um, with Lot and his daughters. I'm careful how I talk about the story I'm about to share with you because we have young years that you know, um, among us and online and I always want to be um, conscious of that and, and caretaking of, of that. Um, but I wanted to To share a story, a modern story, a recent story um, of an example of of how God can redeem things out of the worst of circumstances for His glory and for His honor and to be a blessing to many people. So, um, I wanted to tell you a story of... Henry Bomberger and his adopted son um, Ryan, and uh, using largely Ryan's words to describe um, to describe the story, because Henry was not Ryan's biological father. Um, he He and his wife adopted Ryan. And Ryan was conceived in what we would all agree are about the worst possible circumstances to be conceived. Um, He was conceived in such a way that even many people who are pro-life would say, well, it's okay to get rid of that one. Um, But his mother was courageous, um, And she did not, um, but knew that it would be um, under the I think her age and circumstances that it would be best um, to put um, her child up for adoption. And so Henry Baumberger, his wife, adopted um, Ryan. And so he writes. He says, "Last Friday, January the twenty-second, was the most painful day of my life. I lost." the most incredible man I ever knew, my dad. I tried to articulate some of my thoughts. Because my dad always said, rejoice in the Lord, always. And I didn't say, rejoice. So I rejoice that this morning at 623 AM, having gained a beautiful soul who loved Jesus and people with his whole heart. Henry Mombard was a man who embodied what it means to be a man of God. Today, A man who simplified what it means um, to be pro-life. A father who adopted and loved thirteen children. Few of those of his children were biological, but most were adopted. He today, my father, met the father to the fatherless. Henry Bonner is not a name anyone will see in news articles or in history books, but his impact in this world has and will cause the most beautiful reverberations for generations. He was loved by everyone who knew him, especially his family. He modeled so beautifully how a husband loves and cares for his wife. He was a champion to those of us wrongly labeled unwanted. He was a humble hero to those who were hurting. He was proof for those who wanted to know. That God is real. After 12 years of fighting Parkinson's, he is finally healed. I love you, Dad, more than words can ever express. This week, we um, wrote this four letters. So this week, my family and I celebrated his remarkable life. He was a man who loved so deeply and was so deeply loved. Though his body was put in the ground, his legacy lives on. My dad chose to be the father to children that other men abandoned. He rescued us. He didn't see the world through a broken filter. He saw each of us through God's breakthrough filter. Henry Van Quamberger saw beautiful possibility in each one of us. Sacrificing himself in so many ways so that we could walk into the destiny emblazoned on our lives. My mom and dad shattered the myth of the unhuman child. And with each struggle, each joy, each son and daughter, they proved there is no such thing as unwanted. I don't look like my dad. My skin is brown his was all white. I was adopted and loved. In fact, I was the first one adopted. It obviously went well, as each year a new flavor was added to the family. My siblings were all different shades with various heartbreaking backstories, including how I was conceived. That never kept my dad from calling me his own. He embraced each of our stories with all of the unexpected twists and turns with open arms and helped to change our narratives. He taught me what grace looks and feels like. My dad's devotion to us showed so clearly that it's not blood that binds us. It's not color. It's love. And he loved us unconditionally. He was soft spoken, carried a profound power within him. His faith spoke loudly. Everyone who knew him knew that he wasn't just someone who believed in God, but he lived it out with integrity. My dad was the same person at home as he was in public. His genuineness, his compassion, his generosity, and his passion to serve others made him a beloved leader in the community. I'll never forget seeing my dad as the owner of a retail store with nearly 200 employees sweeping the floor, shoveling the ice, or making coffee. There was no task beneath him. It's just one of the many things that endeared his voice to him and what taught each Baumberger kid a valuable work ethic. Henry Baumberger was a man who loved to laugh. If you chose to raise thirteen, 13 teenagers, you'd have to laugh too. He found that he everything, and sometimes he enjoyed the shock of saying unexpected just to get your attention. I really missed that laugh. Whether it was pummeling us in tennis, swimming in a local pool until the lights came on at night, taking us on bike rides on those country roads, or sitting and worshiping with us in church, my dad never missed a moment to let us know that we were loved. In a culture that tries to pretend that dads are optional in my life, was evidence that a dad is irreplaceable. He is the reason why I'm the husband and father that I am today. Also to multiple adopted children and biology. He is the reason that I see God the Father as a God, as a good and loving father. His passion for the Bible, which became mine as well, is why I know that I will see him again. The world doesn't know what it truly lost a few days ago, but I do. Henry Baumberger made the world a better and kinder and more forgiving place. This is a legacy I'm so proud to hear. And our God is still about redemption and and seeing lives change and bringing out of the ashes beauty, you know, bring out of the brokenness and, and making whole um, in Jesus. And you know the scripture tells us that when we come to Christ, He makes us a new creation, so the old things are passed away, and the total things have become new. So even, you know so regardless of whether our backstory was really hard and full of all sorts of pain, or it was relatively easy and good and calm and peaceful, regardless, if we're following Jesus, that's not our identity. Our identity is in the Lord, first and foremost. The other things are key elements. They are important, and they do shape many things about us, not eliminating that. But, what really matters is that we're part of the family of God, that God has made us in creation, in Jesus, and that we have purpose and power in life. Purpose of life meaning, I mean, when I say about power, I don't mean like an authoritarian power where we get to tell other people what to do. No, I mean a power that enables us to live as light in dark world. I mean a power that is in us that enables us to say no to sin and no to what is wrong. A power that is in us that that if we are humble and asking Lord for wisdom and discernment will help us to see the difference between what is true and what is law. No matter how dressed up that law might be to appear as good, remember, even in enemy himself, as an angel of light. That's why discernment, wisdom are so important for believers because the enemy, a lot of times, you know, it depends on on the purpose of the the audience. But, uh, you know, sometimes there's things that are just obviously evil and gross or whatever, and certain folks are going to go towards that because that's their part, right? But there's others who are not... At that level of depravity. So to them the enemy uses tricks of things appearing to be good, using bait and switch and using things that appear to be light. But a really a bug zapper. <laughs> remember you seeing that in one of the favorite old movies that it's got a lot of good things in it, but a, a bug's life, and there's one little bug that's going, you know, toward the bug zapper and um, there's another one that said, don't go near the light. And then the one that's going toward the light goes, but it's so beautiful. And then, zack! Right? So this is what the enemy wants to do to people is, he wants them, he wants, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care if, if a person is just like, hey, I like to do what's wrong. I like to do evil. I don't care. I can just be a, you know, a murderer and a thief and all these things, like, the enemy's fine with that. The enemy, also for other folks, is like, sets up the blood where people think they're going towards light. But the end result is destruction. and And that's the most dangerous. That's the most dangerous. And even those who are believers don't think that we can't be tricked. We can still be tricked. We can still, as Naomi illustrated, can still give bad advice. Can still believe that advice is the right thing to give. See, Naomi didn't have malice. When she told Ruth and, and Opal to, you know, go back to your homes and to your God, she she thought she was loving them. She wasn't like, oh, well, I hate your guts and I don't want you with me. No, she loved them deeply. And she was convinced in her state of spiritual darkness, in her heart, that the advice that she was giving them was what was best for her daughter-in-law's lives. It was out of love. She was willing to be lonely, even, to go back alone. Remember, this has been her family for like ten years, and she's going to go back. I don't know if I look back, see full ten years. But she's going to. she's known. they are her family, and she's going to go back alone. So she thinks she's loving them and she gets that place. It's not out of malice, but it still lacks wisdom and discernment, because it's not seeking. God's way right is seeking what we think is the best thing to do here, what's the best thing in this situation. Job writes in Job 19, which is 25 through 27, says, For I know that my redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That's amazing. See, because again, we have this written word, you know, that Job didn't have, but he knew this to be true from his experience with God. That he knew that his redeemer lived. He shall stand last in the earth. He knew that he, you know, his that he knew that his flesh was corruptible, but that it wasn't the end of the story. And even said that in my flesh I shall see God. It's not the end of the story. It's a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. And this caused in him, is that my heart yearns within me. I pray that would be the case for us this morning as we take the bread and and the cup as individual bread and cups that are prepackaged and as safe as we can possibly make the situation. But as we take that, those individual little pieces of wafer and those, those little cups. Individually we take it we collectively. See, it's it's about the collective as individuals we make a collective worship. And that we know what Job knew. And we know it even so much better because we have Genesis. revelation and we get to read the gospels and we get to see that jesus went to the cross on our behalf and he came as a king but he came for the purpose to die in our place to pay for our sins and so we remember him as we take the bread and the cup this morning remember yes he died but yes also my redeemer lives and he will return and so we have that privilege this morning to take that together. We'll, we'll sing one or two more songs, a couple more songs together to do that. Um, but just want us to remember this, this week that we don't have to have, you know, our past, good or bad, somebody else's past, good or bad, doesn't have to be the end of the story. Why? Because our God is a Redeemer make things new. And let's be people of hope and people who give hope to others. I read that story of Henry Bomberger managing a, a business with a couple hundred employees and having 13 kids in the world did you do that? And I'm pretty sure it would give a one word answer. Certainly a one word answer would suffice. Jesus. And may that be our perspective as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now For your word, and we thank you that your God of redemption who still redeems people today. And that those of us who have been redeemed because of the blood of your Son that was shed and crossed for us, that paid our price. We come to you humbly, God, and we said, please save us. individually. We said, Lord, please save me. That's And Lord, you've been able to take what was broken. And the more we surrender to you, the more beautiful that new creation, the more impactful that new creation becomes on the rest of So help us, Lord, to be faithful to you because you are the one who has redeemed us. And so as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we say that our Redeemer, yes, has died, but our Redeemer lives. And Jesus, we will see you face to face. we will fall at your feet. And thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to wait to the other side. But even this morning, we can fall at your feet and worship and praise you, our holy Savior and King. Help us do so. Bend our hearts before you, Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.